There are three national symbols that represent Canada, and I'm sure there's powerful symbols that you like to represent New Zealand or England or Australia. Okay, our three national symbols, the Canadian people only know about two of them. One of them is the maple leaf, okay? Yep. The other one is, believe it or not, the hockey stick. Okay. Because ice hockey, that's our game. Yeah. And and the Americans can try, the Swedes can try, but they ain't gonna beat our hockey boys. Okay? Yeah. Now, there's a third symbol which represents Canadian excellence and sacrifice, especially in World War II. And it's made out of aluminum and it's called a Halifax. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Today, I'm talking with something a little bit different for the show. We're talking to a Canadian, and that's Carl Karska. Um, Carl, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Dave. And uh, I'll, um, I'll sit around and uh, talk about things with wings forever if you give me a chance. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> well, um, you're, you're sort of synonymous with Bomber Command and particularly the Halifax. Um, but can you take me back to the beginning and tell me how you first got into aviation? Well, that's, uh, yeah, that goes back a long ways. I'm in my late 60s now. Um, uh, I was born and raised in, uh, on the prairies of Canada in the province of Saskatchewan. And the, the biggest Air Force town in that district is called Moose Jaw. And that's where I was raised. And uh, in the 40s and 50s, uh, and 1950 era was when I was a very young lad there. But Harvards would fly over every single day, scores of them. And they trained all their NATO pilots and all their RCAF pilots with Harvard. So I kind of got imprinted, you know, from very young about airplanes. And uh, so just an airplane nut. And uh, as I finished in my late teens, as I finished, uh, we call it high school, um, I decided to go to flying college and see if I could cut it as a uh, civilian uh, university trained cadet uh, person who wants to become an airline pilot. And so... I did that for um, uh, two years, came out with my commercial license, my instrument rating, my twin engine rating, and uh, that was in 1972. And at that time, the airlines were gearing up and hiring a lot of uh, guys who were from civilian aviation, but I didn't have very many hours, so I really wasn't top of the list to get on with the airline. So I just drove all over Canada in my beat-up old Oldsmobile car, uh, living off uh, friends and uh, surviving from week to week uh, on a shoestring budget. And um, finally, I got a job in a hangar in Edmonton, which is up in the northern part of Alberta. And while I was pushing broom at this hangar, waiting for an opportunity, uh, my friend who had an airline job, he said, a bush operator, Wardair, 
up in Yellowknife, phoned me and said, would you like to become a co-pilot on one of our airplanes? And he had to pass and say, well, I've already got a job, but my I know a friend. Right. And so he jumped in his car, drove over and said, Carl, if you go up to Yellowknife for an interview, you might get a job. So I went up there. I got on as a co-pilot on Twin Otters, uh, flew all over the Arctic uh, for two years. Uh, that's 1972 to 74. And I was just getting trained on an airplane that you guys down under may know. I was getting trained as a co-pilot on a Bristol freighter. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so here I am in the middle of my Bristol freighter training. And it wasn't a glamorous job because you know how much cargo a Bristol freighter can carry? Yep. Guess who loads the cargo? <laughs> the two pilots. Yep, yep. <laughs> Wherever you are in the wilderness, you load the cargo and then you fly it and then you unload it. And so they might as well have paid me in bananas because uh, I was sort of like an ape, you know, just just keep. But it was, you know, bigger airplane, big engines and everything. Then in November of um, 73, right at the end, just before New Year's 74, Canadian Pacific Airlines phoned me and they offered me, I had up upped my application form. You know, I'm building hours all the time. So I had over 1,500 hours at that point, and uh, they offered me a, a job as a flight engineer on DC-8s. Okay. And I knew, I knew that DC-8s went from Vancouver to Honolulu. And so I thought, now, which one should I choose? Yellowknife at minus three zero degrees or Vancouver on a nice balmy day going to Honolulu? So. That was the beginning of my airline career, and um, I did that for, uh, well, I did two years of bush flying and 37 years with Canadian Pacific, CPR, and they got bought by Air Canada. Okay. So I retired in uh, from Air Canada's captain on 767s, uh, usually doing Toronto to London Heathrow. That's good for finding airplane parts, you know. Is right. if you got a layover in London, you can go looking for Halifax bomber parts. So um, I did that until 2011, and then retired. Mm -hmm. But in those last few years of my Air Canada flying, I realized, look, Carl, you gotta, you you love warbirds, especially the Halifax. You want to go be with a group that can there'll be a great future after you retire. And so I decided that uh, the boys at Nanton, Alberta, because they had a lot of gumption, intestinal fortitude, and they wouldn't take no for an answer if they had a project going. Yeah. Um, I decided that was the place to go. So in those last five years before I retired, I moved to Nanton and uh, became part of the Bomber Command Museum of Canada. Okay, right, right, right. So what year was that? That would have been? Uh, about uh, 2005 yep. to, to the year 2011. That's that transition from retiring from Air Canada and being part of the Bomber Command Museum. Okay, okay. So um, 
you mentioned that one of your special interests was the Halifax. Why specifically the Halifax? Well, um, you're, you know what? Uh, we got to go backwards in time. In the 1990s, ni- late 80s and 1990s, I started going to bomber crew reunions to find out about these Canadian bomber boys that flew out of England with the Brits and the, the Kiwis and the Aussies. You know, they were all together as one mixed bag. Yep. And uh, so I got to sit around even into the late nights having a few cool ones with these guys that flew in the Halifaxes and Lanks. And the more I talked to these guys, these Canadian boys that flew bombers, Initially, I was like everybody else in Canada. We thought that they flew exclusively Lancasters. Yep. But the Canadian squadrons were given the Halifax to fly in combat. <coughs> Excuse me, I had to clear my throat. Sure. Um, so <coughs> the um, when I started talking to them, and they started talking in glowing terms about this. Halifax, this four-engine bomber that was built like a brick outhouse, and with the Bristol Hercules engines, it was a dynamite bomber. I started to realize, no, they didn't fly the Lancaster. They flew the Halifax. Mm. And then I checked the stats, and the Canadian squadrons flew 40,000 operations, like just the Canadian boys. Yep. in their Canadian RCAF squadrons. Yep. 40,000 is the grand total. 70% of those ops in combat were flown in the Halifax. Oh, wow. Only 20% of the Canadian squadrons flew the Lancaster. And, okay. of course, the, the other 10% is Wellingtons. Right. So... You know, I was stunned by this. You know, here I am. I identify with my airplane. I I know my airplane. I'm part of my airplane, my 767. And I realized these guys, they flew the Halifax. And there was zero Halifaxes in Canada, even though we used over 1,000 Halifaxes in our Canadian squadrons. They flew the Lanx home to Canada after the war was won. But what did they do with their Canadian Halifaxes? They left them behind and the Brits cut them all up for pots and pans. Right. So, you know, I mean, I thought about a symbolic airplane and I thought, you know, it really isn't the Lancaster. In the British squadrons, follow me on this, in the British squadrons, yes, you must say Lancaster is the number one bomber, but not in the Canadian squadrons. So I just... You know, that evolution through the 80s, 90s, and uh, to the year 2000, um, I was just amazed that the Canadians didn't know about the Halifax, and they didn't understand that 70% of our lads in Canadian squadrons paid the ultimate sacrifice flying in combat in a Halifax. So... That's not the same for the New Zealanders or the Aussies or the Brits, but it's an unusual relationship of Canadians. What the heck did they fly during World War II? So number one on that list is the old Hallibag. It's really interesting. Um, you know, New Zealanders, we had, uh, well, 
two bomber squadrons. One was medium bomber, one was heavy bomber. Uh, and, you know, everyone thinks, okay, they flew Lancasters. Um, and sure, they did. They also flew Stirlings and Wellingtons. And, um, and in, the, in the medium bomber, they, they were on uh, Venturas and then Mosquitoes. Um, but the, there were Kiwis flying in Halifaxes as well on RAF squadrons. And I think also on uh, Royal Canadian Air Force squadrons posted in, in Kurin as well. Um, but it is a much less known story here of the Halifax. And That's you're right. right. And so, you know, uh, I had tunnel vision after a while and I'd say, I wonder where a person could find a Halifax and bring it back to Canada. And this is while I'm traveling all over the world as a 767 pilot. And, um, uh, you know, to, I'm, 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 it's a long-winded evolution, Dave. Yep. And you've got to hang with me on this. Oh, so yeah, yeah. The, re the realization of if you were a Canadian and you wanted to pay tribute to the majority of the airmen that flew in bombers, you should go get yourself a Halifax. So then I thought, well, I, I guess I'm a prime candidate for that because I can fly all over the world and look for a wrecked Halifax or look for something that would be a starter kit for a Halifax. Yeah. And of course, I don't know whether I'm very dumb or very smart because, <laughs> you know, a four engine heavy bomber like a Halifax is, oh yeah, it's like a dog chasing a bus, eh? Because if, if you ever catch one, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> yeah. It's it's a logistical nightmare, even if you found one. But I thought, what the heck, I'll take a shot. So, you know, I started looking around and I went through all of the Halifaxes. I, 6,000 Halifaxes. I went through all of them to try and find a prime candidate ditching mm -hmm. in freshwater. Because you know how the warbird thing is, if it's on the top of a mountain, it's a wreck. Somebody will go get it. Yep. If it's down in a forest somewhere, somebody will go get it. But the airplanes that are underwater, it's kind of like they're forgotten. Yes. But yes. you don't really, you can't really go after one that's in salt water because here we are, you and I, at our age in this millennial setup, you know what salt water does to aluminium. So you can't really say the sea is the best way to go, but uh, I did find one and it was a ditching on a lake in Norway. And at first I thought, well, the Brits already got that one. Remember they pulled one out of a fjord and it went to RAF Hendon. Yes. Yep. Initially I thought, the one that was at Hendon was the one that I found in the master list of Halifaxes. Okay. And so, the, but I said, wait a minute. The one that got, came out of the fjord, it landed in 42. This one ditched in 45. So then I, you know, I did more homework on this. And this was in the early 90s that I was doing all this homework. It took mm -hmm. me two years to gather all the information. And uh, uh, the, I'm trying to place it here. Okay, so 
I flew a 767 from Toronto to Paris. And when I got there, Air Canada told me, Carl, you're not flying a, a 767 home to Canada. We're sending you home as a passenger, right? Yep. So that gives me free time in Paris if I want to stay. Okay, yep. But I had just had the revelation of there was this Halifax in a lake in Norway that hadn't been recovered. And I knew it was deep, like 500 feet deep. Yep. And so I thought, well, here I am in Paris. It's just a short one-hour flight to Oslo. And I could go up there and research it at their archives. So I thought I better go and begin this process of trying to find this, well, I'd call it Canadian Holy Grail yep. made out of aluminium, okay? Yep. You know, a Halifax, if you could find an intact one. And it did go down intact. And uh, so I flew, I bought a ticket, I went on SAS to Oslo. I got off the airplane and I grabbed a hotel. I said, okay, in the morning I'll go to the archives. And I was trying to find what the Norwegians had on this airplane that had landed on Lake Mayosa mm -hmm. in the spring of 45. And so the next morning I got up and I went to the archives and I said, I'm trying to research a World War II airplane that uh, crashed on a lake north of here. And, and I said it was a Halifax bomber. And there's serendipitous things here that, uh, you know, this particular Halifax yeah. is, she said, oh, uh, there is a Mr. Sandberg here who flew Halifaxes in World War II. And he knows all about this airplane. Wow. So I got introduced to uh, Mr. Sandberg and uh, he had won the DFC with a 76 squadron on Halifaxes. Wow. And he knew all about, you know, what I was trying to do. And he said, well, I know the two gentlemen who have been researching that airplane. They live right beside the lake where the airplane went in. Would you like to talk to them? So he got a hold of uh, uh, Tor, Marceau is his name, and Tor and uh, his buddy, Rolf had been researching this airplane in the lake for many years. And they, they said, well, where, uh, Carl, you're visiting, you're, you're in Oslo. Yes. I said, I'd like to see if we could meet or something, but I can't stay more than 24 hours. I've got to get back to Canada. And they said, he said, where are you now? They're 80 miles away. And he said, where are you now? And I said, well, I'm at so-and-so hotel. And they said, we'll come right down. So they drove 80 miles to see me on the spur of the moment. Wow. And then, so Tor and Rolf walked in, shake hands, have a coffee, talk about it. And they said, uh, so you, you're trying to find a Halifax for Canada? And I said, yes. And you and I talked about the statistics of, of how important it is to the Canadian squadrons. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I listed all that for uh, Rolf uh, and Tor and Tor looked at Rolf and nodded and Rolf nodded back and they pulled out a sonar picture of the Halifax laying on the bottom of the lake 
they had found it. Wow. And they'd been holding it secret because they didn't know how to, A, who would want it. And, you know, they didn't have the money to get it. Yeah. So that became a huge adventure. I went back to Canada. We raised uh, over a third of a million dollars. And uh, a year later, we came back and we raised the airplane using robotic subs and uh, uh, special steel lifting device called Moby Grip. It was big. It was made out of steel. It was painted white. It only fit Halifaxes. And uh, so we called it Moby Grip. <laughs> and we, we used this Moby Grip to get under the wing. And we lifted the whole Halifax up 700 feet. Wow. And uh, so uh, that was a grand adventure. That was my first Halifax salvage, but it ain't my last. No, well, um, just a, a few details on that one. Uh, how did you convince people to give to, to raise money? How did you manage to uh, get people behind it? Well, there was a Halifax Aircraft Association that we had started to try and tell the history in Canada of the, how important the Halifax was to our bomber boys. And so that group had a very good executive. They, had, they were well connected to all the bomber crew reunions. And remember, this is 1993, 94. These guys were still alive, right? Right, right, yep. And so the majority, hundreds and hundreds of guys that flew Halifaxes, when we put the word out, the money just poured in. Wow. And so, so we raised the money. We got some money from the federal government of Canada. Do you have, do you watch a show down there called uh, uh, Magnum? You know, the new Magnum TV show. Do you get that detective show? Uh, I have, I have seen it. Yeah, (laughs) I know. Anyways, there's a Magnum's buddy on there says, I know a guy every time they, they don't have a solution. Yep. 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 Says, I know a guy. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I did everywhere I went. I seemed to know a guy (laughs) and you know, he would help with this and he would help with that. And so we raised the money and then in the, um, the late summer of 1995, we pulled it out of 740 feet of water. Wow, that's amazing. And so you had chosen um, a path for where it was going to go and who would restore it and all that at, at that stage, or, or did that come later? No, no, that was kind of, uh, you know, building blocks of, uh, you know, it's like, the as I said, the dog catches the bus. Yeah. Well, if you don't think about where to hide the bus or to store the bus, then you have, you still have a headache. Yeah. So, um, no, we had, um, the RCAF had a, uh, a very nice museum just east of Toronto, but they didn't have a heavy bomber. Okay. And so, and of course they were hoping for a Lancaster because they were naive in thinking that the Lancaster is what, they flew but then the more they realized how important the Halifax was the more they wanted to be there so we were able to haul it via C-130 Hercules Air Force C-130 Hercules from Norway to Trenton Ontario which is the main RCAF base Uh, 
near Toronto. So it just worked out very well. And so it was restored over a nine year period and it was dedicated on 2000, in 2005, uh, totally restored, uh, static, looks brand new, all rebuilt. And uh, it's, it's got to be, honestly, it's got to be the best Halifax rebuild of any of the three Halifaxes that are in existence now. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I uh, first found out about that, I think, probably a year and a half before it was unveiled at the museum. Uh, it was You were in the right. sort of final <clears throat> final stages of its restoration. And I, that was about the time when I first started getting onto forums on the internet. And um, before that, I had no idea. You know, I had, I'd seen the one at Hendon back in the 90s. Uh, I, and at that stage, I think maybe the one in Yorkshire was almost complete, but I didn't even know there was a third one at that stage, and, and it just blew me away. And then watching the photos come from the unveiling in 2005, <clears throat> just incredible. I mean, it just looked like a brand new aircraft being rolled out, didn't it? Sure, it did. And you know, Dave, there are so many wonderful things happened that you couldn't have predicted it, it on your life. Anything? Well, uh, let me give you a for instance. Yeah. Is Ian Foster, who he he said, Carl, you're going to rebuild the Halifax. He loves Halifaxes. He lives in Scotland. Yeah. And he said, you're going to need lots and lots of parts to rebuild that Halifax. I'm going to start a scrounger group called Halifax 57 Rescue. Oh, and I'm going to supply you with every single part I can from all over the UK. So Ian's one of my dear friends now. And, but uh, he just went everywhere and found all kinds of parts. And then he would, he would take them to Air Force bases and the Air Force would haul them over across the ocean to the Halifax rebuild in Trenton. So that's how Halifax 57 Rescue got its start. Okay. And when Ian, when the Halifax NA337 was finished its rebuild, Ian said, I think maybe I will just, you know, shut down Halifax 57 Rescue. And I said, no, Ian, I will take it over. Okay. So that's the transition of our special Halifax recovery group is called Halifax 57 Rescue and Ian Foster, the stuff he found was just blow you away. One time he heard about a, uh, a hen house, a uh, Halifax fuselage up in the Hebrides Island of Scotland. And there's an airplane bellied in there. So they cut up the airplane and a farmer got a fuselage for a hen house. And so Ian went and checked on it. And there were two fuselages of two Halifaxes on the same island. Wow. Now, the Yorkshire, the Yorkshire Air Museum got the first fuselage. And they used it in their rebuild. Yep. So you can imagine Ian saying, no, no, no. That one went to the Yorkshire Air Museum. And the guy said, no. He said, I just drove by the farm the other day. There's another fuselage up here. So remember our Halifax when it ditched on the lake, the tail yep. snapped? Yep. Okay, so that's major damage in the rear fuselage. Yep. So Ian went on his motorcycle up to the Hebrides, and he found the farm, 
of Mary Mackenzie, the widow, yeah. and he he struck a deal with her, and she she was a hard bargainer, and she said, "I'll I've got to have twenty five pounds and two bottles of whiskey." <laughs> and so so Ian said, "Okay." So he goes back down to the local uh, spirits store and he gets that and he gives her the money. And so the Ian contacts me and says, I've got you a fuselage to help you repair your rear fuselage. So uh, the local rugby team put steel pipes in through the fuselage. Like it's open on both ends. Right. And they, they lift the lads, the big, the big lads, you know, yeah. maybe the, and like all blacks or I don't know, but anyways, so they lift it up and they take it out to the road. They truck it to the airport. A Royal Canadian Air Force C-130 Hercules is going back to Canada. It stops in in Scotland, picks up the fuselage and takes it to Trenton, Ontario. Wow. That's and so, yeah. So, but it, just wait, Dave, it gets, it gets better. Okay. So we got this, 14-foot section of rear fuselage that is exactly the piece we need to splice into where the tail snapped. Yeah. And when they splice it into the fuselage, then, you you know, you've got the rear fuselage, then you've got the tail comes in, and there's a great big bulkhead with, yeah. like, 200 bolts. And when they brought the tail section up to the fuselage after they spliced it in, all the bolt holes lined up. Wow. The That's airplane crazy. that was the airplane that was the NA142 the hen house yeah was built on the same jig as NA337 that came a little later. That's brilliant. So, you know, I mean, there's weird stuff like that, Dave, and I'm yeah. sitting there going, "Holy smokers." <laughs> you know? And so now, the, what uh, George Roshkoff at Trenton was in charge of rebuilding the main spar of the Halifax, and he yep. did a beautiful job. But he was a bit of a prankster. And when the VIPs were coming over to see the Mary Mackenzie's hen house arriving in Trenton across the ocean, yep. George went and boiled up a dozen eggs, <laughs> and then, and then he. He hid the hard-boiled eggs all over the inside of the fuselage, right? Because, <laughs> yeah. oh, here comes Mary McKenzie's hen house. Eh? So, no, just, he, he was a goof, goofball. That's just, that's just an aside, okay? Yeah. But, uh, so, um, NA337 rebuilt beautifully, and we had our first Halifax in Canada. That's brilliant. That's amazing. That when you actually pulled that one up out of the water, how complete was it at that stage? Was it mostly there? Yes. Apart from being uh, broken. Yeah. Okay. So when you you're ditching on water, the nose can take damage. Yep. When you're when you're touching down and you slam the tail on the water first, the tail can take damage, but the entire wing all the fuselage and the tail unit were found. Now forward of the windshield, the nose section took a hammering. So that had to be rebuilt forward of the windshield. Yeah. But the overall airframe was in pristine condition. And uh, when we had the airplane up on the beach, um, the one of the 
Air Force mechanics that was working deassembling the airplane, the rear turret was full of mud, sediment from 50 years of mud entering the rear turret. And and so there's this blanket of mud in the bottom of the turret. And he, he sees a bump in the in the bottom of the blanket of mud. So he reaches down and he's groping through the mud and he pulls out the coffee thermos of the rear gunner. And it was in perfectly preserved in the mud. You know, it's a standard coffee thermos, metal, metal body with a plastic cup screwed on it. Yep. And on the side of the thermos, it said, it said, Waitman, W-E-I-G-H-T-M-A-N. And the rear gunner, he showed up to see, to see his airplane come out of the water. But we didn't tell him that we'd found his coffee thermos, not right away, because we knew we were, we were going to have a celebratory dinner, successful recovery Mm -hmm. that evening. So when, when we were having the dinner and Thomas Waitman, the only survivor of that crew was there with us, uh, we told the lady serving coffee, see that guy over there, don't serve him any coffee. And so then Thomas is waiting for his coffee and the lady goes by him and he starts whining about, well, don't I get any coffee? And uh, Jeff Jeffrey, one of our group, he's got a silver tray with a napkin over it. Right. And he comes walking out and he says, Thomas, what did you take with you when you were went on ops? Uh, did you have anything to drink back there? He says, well, uh, I had a, a flask of coffee. And uh, <laughs> so... Jeff pulls this napkin off and he says, here, you got to drink your own coffee tonight. (laughs) And Thomas, he was continued with the whining and he said, is it still hot? (laughs) So, but we gave him back his original thermos that had been sitting there for 50 years. That's brilliant. That's an awesome story. Yeah. Well, yeah, but Dave, there's all kinds of weird and wonderful things happened then. So, you know, I mean, like I, I just accept when you're doing these recoveries, when you're going back through time and you're saving history and you're giving credit to young men who saved the world, um, you know, things, good things can happen. Just go. It's when, and this is what I learned about recoveries. When the green light goes on, go. When the door opens, step through. So even if you don't have the money or you haven't planned for something, if somebody says, well, we could help you with that, you know, we have uh, some heavy equipment that could help you with the lift. Uh, you know, you say, well, sure, we'd love to have you with us. You know what I mean? Yes. So those those are building blocks of keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, once you'd recovered that first aircraft and it went to uh, the museum to be restored, you you obviously didn't stop there. You've you've moved on to other Halifaxes as well. That's right. And, you know, okay, so we're rebuilding the Halifax, and I love to go there and work on the Halifax that came out of the lake in Norway. And, you know, there were some people in our organization rebuilding the Halifax that they thought, well, we've got our Halifax. We don't need to look for any more. Yeah. And I said, this is my opinion. If this Halifax is so important to our aviation history, 
we should have a Halifax in every major museum across Canada. Now, a little bit of a tangent here. Three families of three missing airmen came to me after the Halifax recovery from Norway. And they said, Carl, you know how to do expeditions and things like that. Could you help us with a, another project? And I said, well, sure, what is it? And they said, we found our uncle's airplane in a swamp in Belgium. Right. It's a Halifax from 426 Squadron. And the airplane crashed there. And before the airplane sank out of sight, they got five men out of the airplane, the wreck. Yeah. But when they came back the next day to recover the other guys who were still in the wreck, it had disappeared in the mud. Right. And so I said, well, okay, I'll take a shot. So, you know, they're rebuilding the Halifax in Trenton. Now there's this new project in a swamp in Belgium. And those people, there are certain people that said, well, why would you go and get another Halifax right. when we've already got one? Well, hello, anybody in there? There's three airmen that we have to save. Yeah. And don't, don't you guys understand that if we save the three airmen and we get the wreck of the airplane out of the swamp, you guys don't happen to need any Halifax parts in Trenton, Ontario, do you? Exactly. But you know, there are some people who are administrators that don't understand how important something can be to a rebuild. Yeah. You can save thousands of dollars if you had an original part. So the first thing was to get the three men out. So uh, we raised some money. I went to Belgium. There was an aviation archaeology group called Baja, and they're still existing now. <clears throat> and uh, Stefan Delanois and a few other guys, they're real keen on saving any old airplanes they can find. They've uh, pumped out the entire five-acre swamp to 20 feet underground. Wow. That's a special pumping deal. Yeah. But they, they pumped it out to 20 feet deep. There was no water down 20 feet. Wow. And then it became a dry area. Then we dug up the airplane and we found the three airmen. And that was our priority. Yeah. And so... We had the full honors funeral for the three missing airmen. All the families came from Canada. Uh, there were, and you know how the officials, they love to come and bask in the glory. Yes. I, yes. Call, I call them uh, civilian moths because they, whenever the spotlight is on something glorious or honorable, uh, there's officials like to come in and say, hi, I'm here. Yeah, But they weren't there to help you with the recovery exactly, or with the technical problems or with raising money. Yep. Sorry, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent and being cynical Canadian, okay? So, <laughs> it happens the uh, world over, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. So <laughs> it was wonderful to meet these families, to, to give these airmen back to their families. And when we were finished that, we had... You got to understand that airplane was crushed severely. Right. And, but here's the blessing. And we didn't know it in 1997 when it happened, the recovery. 
we saved tons of aluminium from the Halifax, you know, the, the mini mountain of Halifax crushed. We said, we can't, we're not selling this to the tip, to the, uh, the smelter. We're, we're going to melt it down into ingots and bars and we're going to save it because somewhere, someday, somehow, somebody's going to want original combat aluminium from a heavy bomber to make a memorial. Right. So, and we didn't know how prophetic that was going to be in the years to come. So we saved all this Halifax aluminium. We, you like the way I say that? That's, I could be, I could be middle of the road Canadian and say aluminum, but, <laughs> but I, I know my audience, so I better stick with aluminum. Okay. So, <laughs> yes. so we saved that and the, those bars of aluminum came back to Canada and were stored at the Bomber Command Museum in Nanton. And so, uh, and you know, there's more to this story now because uh, uh, that when they built the Bomber Command Memorial in Green Park across from Buckingham Palace, the Bomber Command Museum of Canada said, you know, we could offer them 800 pounds of ingots of a combat Halifax to this memorial. And see, it would be real metal from World War II. And so uh, we offered it to them. They accepted it uh, very gladly. And they finally came up with a beautiful idea. They would make the skylight over the statue of the seven airmen out of the aluminum of the Halifax bomber. All right. So if you go and look at the Bomber Command Memorial, these giant statues of seven airmen that are there, if you look up over their head, the skylight is built out of aluminium. And it's it's the Halifax aluminium. That's fantastic. Yeah. So it really was a blessing. And uh, now... Dave O'Malley, do you know him? Have you read his stories? He he writes a lot of aviation stories yep. here in Canada. Yep. Okay. Come across me, yeah. Yeah. So he wrote an article on how that aluminium went into the Bomber Command Memorial in England. So, but we were joking about it and we thought, isn't, you know, we're thinking about the roof over the British airmen statues. We're thinking, isn't that just like the Canadians? They've always got the Brits covered. Yeah. <laughs> true <laughs> <laughs> so but um no that was a real blessing is to be able to share that memorial medal with the um the memorial itself yeah fantastic yeah, yeah. so you see how these things years later all of a sudden something will turn into a blessing absolutely absolutely yeah uh, and the, what, what came next in terms of um, projects? Well, um, getting towards uh, the year 2000, uh, 2005, when the Halifax was rebuilt at Trenton, I was looking for another place to go. 
to be part of a museum. I was getting ready. I was within five years of retirement. Yep. So um, I was really impressed with the Bomber Command Museum of Canada in Nanton, Alberta. They were small town dedicated, never took money from the government, uh, built a Bomber Command museum mm-hmm. around a Lancaster, added airplanes, added a beautiful national memorial wall. We have a 40 foot long black granite wall with all 10,500 names of the Canadians killed in Bomber Command. They're engraved on that wall. Wow. So, you know, that I just thought, well, I've got to be with these guys. They're my kind of guys. They're scroungers. They're determined. They're rebels. Uh, they just don't take no for an answer. And they were a good team. And you know what I'm talking about. When you see a good team that doesn't squabble, yeah. that doesn't have big egos, they just want to make good airplanes fly and run and be brand new again. You know that's hard to find. It is, yep. Yep. There's all kinds of, I've seen it before where museums, you have certain people that if you you walk into their territory, they'll growl at you. You know, sort of like dogs with little, their little kingdoms. Yes, yep. So when you find a great team to work with, and I seem to uh, have seen that in New Zealand, like, the Omaka boys and all that kind of stuff. Yep. I I just, you know, once you find a good team, stick with it and, you know, keep building your team. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, the, I moved to Nanton, I retired from the airline and, um, you know, I was looking all over the world for another Halifax. I, finally convinced these Lancaster guys at Nanton, no, you are missing something. Yeah. And I convinced them that a Halifax should be here with the Lank. So then we started looking all around the world for another Halifax. And I found big chunks of Halifax here, there, and everywhere. Like the the center section of a Hastings-Halifax in Malta. That's another... That's another story, Dave. We can't get into that. Right. Uh, so, but I found that. So that was a core, a starter kit. You know how, like, if you found a center section, just a beat up center section of a Hawker Hurricane? Yeah. You could say, I can start an entire Hurricane with this. Yeah. Well, so that's what we did with uh, that center section from Malta. But we were looking for an airframe somewhere that might be a candidate to help us build up another Halifax for Nanton. And because because people knew on the internet about this weirdo named Carl that was into Halifaxes and had tunnel vision, these Swedish divers were cruising along one day and they had their fish finder on and they'd been out on a dive somewhere and this is a diving club and they had their fish finder on and they saw something on the bottom and they said, what the hell is that? And so they stopped and went back down 
and they found this wreck of a Halifax, but they didn't, they saw it was a big bomber. But they didn't know it was a Halifax, but they were thinking it could be the Halifax that went down here in 1943. Okay. So they get on the internet and they find uh, Carl KJ, uh, you know, here with Halifax 57 Rescue. And they said, well, uh, would you, uh, could you help us identify if this is the Halifax? So, um, you know, I said, sure. And I said, would you guys consider uh, of being par partners in recovering the airplane. And they said, oh, well, you could come and look, but the national government of Sweden doesn't allow us to touch uh, anything right. that's underwater. You can look at a shipwreck or an aircraft wreck, but you can't touch it. Yep. If you do, you're in deep trouble with the Swedish government. So I went over, we did the exploratory dives, confirmed it was the Halifax HR 871 that had gone down in 1943 and all the guys had bailed out. So that was, you know, there was no bodies. Yep. And so, you know, having done NA 337 and got salvage permit from the Norwegian government and having done LW 682 and got permissions from the Belgian government, I know there is a way. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? There yeah. is a, the the Swedish divers are they weren't they were just inexperienced at recoveries. They just didn't know, yes, there is a way, but you gotta know a guy. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I went back with this confirmation to Canada and I spoke to my Air Force, he's an Air Force jet pilot, retired, now member of parliament, Laurie yeah. Hahn. And uh, he's since retired, but during that heyday, he was well-connected. So he's my guy. Okay. So I said, I know a guy. So then he went to the Minister of National Defense of Canada and said, will you write a letter to the Minister of National Defense of Sweden and tell him, this Canadian airplane, and it was from 405 Squadron, this yep. airplane that was underwater. Yep. So that meant it was Canadian. Can we get our Halifax back? So finally in uh, uh, August of, uh, I think it was 2015, 2016, uh, we get a letter from the Minister of National Defense of Sweden saying, yes, Canada can salvage the Halifax. Great. So the Swedish guys are going, you mean we can dive and recover this? You know, so now that it's, they're really enthusiastic. So we've started on that. Uh, we've dived on it six or seven times. We know where everything is that's connected to the airframe. Yep. Uh, we've lifted some sample pieces. Uh, and remember where the Halifax is underwater off the south coast of Sweden. It's 75% freshwater yep. and 25% saltwater. But a lot of the airframe has sifted under the sand. Okay. So you see sand is a good blanket. And so we are expecting to find lots of good sections.
that we can use. The airplane did break up into pieces as it hit the water while it was cruising along. There was nobody on board. So we're optimistic. Uh, it's the world's biggest jigsaw puzzle, Dave. Yeah. It's, uh, we've got a center section, we've got landing gear. And remember, while maybe your listeners, your viewers don't know this, we've been collecting Bristol Hercules engines for years for our Halifax. And we've got seven Bristol Hercules engines in various conditions. Some are excellent, some are not so good, but we can make four runners with what we've got. Right. Most of them are Bristol freighter engines actually yeah but hey a sleeve valve bristol hercules engine is a bristol hercules engine so we're we're looking forward to starting to put everything together and the center section is ready if people want to look at the halifax center section being rebuilt in canada you can look now and it's real simple go to facebook and type in one word, rebuild shop, one word, okay. continuous, rebuild shop. And you'll see Knox Tech is just getting ready to skin the 30-foot center section. Brilliant. Fantastic. So, so that's something new. So rebuild shop, if you type it in, you can see everything that Scott and his team are doing. Yep. So. Yeah, um- just with the the Swedish uh, recovery, when you went a couple of years ago with um, sonar equipment, I think it was, and started looking for that aircraft, did you not find some more as well, some other aircraft? Well, what we did was we looked at all of the Halifaxes that it could have been. And so we actually came up with two other, actually three, other Halifax ditchings and crashes into the Baltic within 50 miles of the one that we're diving on. So you see there's this precedent of the team together with a salvage tugboat, with divers who now know what a Halifax looks like, and with these other Halifaxes that are there in that fairly fresh water we're looking at a fairly good future here of when we finish recovering HR 871, let the rebuild keep on rolling, but we could keep on rolling doing more salvages too. Right. So we're hopeful that this will be something that we can do over the next five or 10 years. Okay. So your dream of having one in all of the major uh, museums across Canada might actually happen. Well, it might, but if I say that to the wrong people, they'll say, oh, I think Carl's had too many kokanee beer, you know, because (laughs) (laughs) kokanee beer is one of our local favorites here. So, uh, uh, so I'm always making jokes about kokanee, but, uh, um, so I would, okay. So there are three national symbols that represent Canada. And I'm sure there's powerful symbols that you like to represent New Zealand or England or Australia. Okay, our three national symbols, the Canadian people only know about two of them. One of them is the maple leaf, okay? 
the other one is, believe it or not, the hockey stick. Okay. Because ice hockey, that's our game. Yeah. And and the Americans can try, the Swedes can try, but they ain't going to beat our hockey boys. Okay. Yeah. Now, there's a third symbol which represents Canadian excellence and sacrifice, especially in World War II, and it's made out of aluminum, and it's called a Halifax, because 70% of the 10,000 lads, Canadian lads, killed in bombers, were flying the Halifax. Yeah. For you and I. So, you see, there's, I like to call it three national symbols. So, we carry the torch, we keep going, uh, we don't quit, and, you know, we're having fun too. Yeah. It's brilliant. It really is brilliant that uh, it was almost an extinct aircraft. I mean, what, 20 years ago, there was only really the one in Hendon. Sure. And now, and and now you know, it's it's incredible. You know what I like about all of these over the past 25 years of chasing Halifaxes is you meet great people and the destination was always Halifax, but it was who you traveled with. Yeah. That was the most fun. Yeah. And I've met all kinds of characters all over the world. And, uh, you know, we're all, uh, we're all, uh, sort of, and I gravitate towards the guys that will give credit to the Halifax as the other bomber. And we know which one gets the spotlight, Dave. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not moaning and groaning. I'm just saying, hey, there was other airplanes and there was uh, other airmen flying those airplanes. Absolutely. It's actually really interesting when you look at the history of the Halifax. Uh, it was originally designed as a two-engine aircraft, just like the Manchester. But, but before it even got into service, they decided, hang on, we'll go with four. Because the it was going to be vulture engines just like the Manchester, uh, and they they put uh, Merlins on the on four Merlins on it, and it went into service like a month after the Battle of Britain. So it's really two years ahead of the Lancaster in service and, and served right through the war. Um, it's a really important type, and it it's it's almost forgotten. I mean. Right. Same with the same with the Sterling as well. I mean, there's no Sterlings, but you know, no. everyone everyone remembers the Wellington and the Lancaster. But That's right. Yeah. Now, so to the the initial numbers of Halifax that were built, they it had teething problems, and but we, I would like to say in the same sentence, the Lancaster when it first came out had teething problems. Yeah. So. Um, and Sir Arthur Harris didn't like the Halifax because he thought that all Halifaxes were like the Merlin-powered Halifaxes. And later on, with the Bristol Hercules, um, the uh, airplane was transformed. And the Mark VI Halifax had Bristol Hercules with fuel injection. And so the... Halifaxes with Merlins had about 1,400 horsepower per Merlin. The Mark VI Halifaxes had fuel-injected Bristol Hercules with 1,800 horsepower per engine. Wow. 
So that's 1,600 more horsepower per aircraft transformed. That's incredible. So you see, there is a difference. So you, it's apples and oranges. It's early Halifaxes yep. and it's later Halifaxes. Now, did you know that the Halifax had 25% higher survival rate from bailout? No, I didn't. That's because that, that's an RAF study. They looked at where the emergency exits were placed on a Halifax, and they looked at the numbers of people that had survived a bailout of a heavy bomber, Lancaster versus Halifax. And the Halifax had emergency exits that were close to uh, the lads that had to get out. Right, right. So they weren't struggling their way past something that's on fire or blown apart. Yes. They were. Yeah. They had the hatch right there. A couple or three steps, and you were gone out of a Halifax. But it was. I understand it was a little more difficult to get out of a link in certain emergency exits. So there's all these pluses and minuses. But bottom line is bomber command. Uh, they did their job and they pounded uh, Hitler and his uh, criminals uh, into submission. Absolutely. Uh, just on that point, um, I think, wasn't it true that the Halifax was actually a more ergonomic aircraft inside? You, you weren't having to, you weren't so cramped as the Lancaster and you didn't have the great big spar to climb over? Yeah, the spar and the Lank was a major uh, stumbling block to moving around the airplane. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Halifax had a kind of a taller fuselage uh, from belly to top, top of floor, was quite uh, roomy. And uh, so it was, uh, you were able to move around a little bit better in a Halifax. And um, uh, yeah, it was tougher. Uh, the tail unit of a Halifax was very strong. And uh, that's why they used the Halifax to tow the Hamel car and the horse gliders right. is because it could pull those great big gliders uh, without damaging the tail. And so it was a jack of all trades. Yeah. Yes, yeah, we, yeah. Must give, we must give credit to the Lancaster as the premier bomb hauler of World War II. But, <clears throat> excuse me, the... Um, Halifax was a jack of all trades. It yep, could no, carry bombs. Absolutely. Yep. And on that, uh, the Halifax was <laughs> uh, used in coastal command. Um, the Pathfinders used it. I think um, wasn't 405 Squadron um, this particular aircraft that you're after now. That was Pathfinder Squadron, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And uh, 405 used Halifaxes, and then they transitioned to Lancasters uh later i think in late 43 right. so uh but uh yeah the uh halifax was uh w when we were diving on the halifax uh in sweden the pilot of that airplane was still alive living in hull england right so i get on my mobile phone when i'm in the boat and we're doing dives on the Halifax and we're anchored over top of the Halifax. Yeah. So I phoned Alwyn Phillips and I spoke to him and I said, I said, hi Alwyn, it's Carl. We're, we're diving on the Halifax. We're 40 feet from your Halifax right now. 
And so he was thrilled with that. And uh, so I said, we're hoping to do some recovery soon and things like that. He says, if you'll find the cockpit, he says, I want my leather seat cushion back because he was a little short guy and he, (laughs) he had to have a special custom built cushion behind him on the pilot seat so he could get full throw on the rudders when he was flying. And uh, uh, I also had to apologize to Alwyn to the uh, Swedish press when Alwyn, he was the last one out of the Halifax as he pointed it towards the sea and he was overland. So he bailed out and it's pitch black darkness and Alwyn's the last guy out. So the chute pops, he's coming down. And you know, when you're under a chute, you're not going at a lazy rate. Yeah. It, you're coming down vertically fairly fast. Yes. Yeah. And Alwyn landed on a Swedish cow. He landed out in a cow field. He landed right on the Swedish cow and broke its neck oh, wow. and, and killed it stone dead. So, and the Swedish farmer I guess there was a big kerfuffle locally that this airman had killed his cow. And so I had to, in front of the Swedish press, when they were interviewing me about the recovery, I had to say, and we are, Canada's very sorry that we killed your cow. (laughs) (laughs) So, but yeah, oh, we had lots of fun talking to Alwyn on the phone. Uh, He never made it over to Sweden, uh, you know, uh, like uh, Thomas Waitman did, but uh, he, we were always sharing our progress with him, and he's since passed away now. Okay. Did, did that crew end up getting interned? Uh, at yes, the... they did. And now there's another story, and we don't need to dwell on it, but an author came to me, and I, he said, I'm a sports writer here in Sweden. And when the Canadians, a whole bunch of Canadians got interned because they bailed out here, in the winter of 43, they were getting bored. So they formed a hockey team and they were out playing hockey on some ice. And this Swedish millionaire came along and said, Hey, you guys play pretty good hockey. How'd you like to form up a team? And I'll, I'll sponsor you and send you all over Sweden and you can play against Sweden's best hockey team. So here's these RCAF flyers now are playing hockey. And I knew one of the guys named Jim Flick. He was the rear gunner of a Halifax and he had to bail out over Sweden. And he was telling me about uh, playing hockey, drinking beer and chasing blonde girls. And, and he said, Carl, it was a hell of a way to fight a war. (laughs) So, but they, they were interned there and they were there over a year. Okay. But the Canadian hockey team played all over Sweden. These airmen. That's incredible. And the guy's written a book about these Canadians playing hockey in Sweden. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, t- can you tell me a little bit more about um, the museum itself? I know you, you said you got a Lancaster there. That one actually runs its engines, is that correct? Yes. Uh, the guy spent eight years rebuilding the Merlins. It's a Canadian-built Lank, a Mark 10. And uh, they've uh, totally uh, gone through all the systems. It's got good pneumatics, good hydraulics, uh, uh, engines all run great, uh, electrics are pretty good, um, and we take it out and run run it at least once a month every summer season, but COVID 
has sabotaged us because yeah. so many people are arriving at our museum to see the Lancaster run that we we can go over our physical limit yeah. of how many people can attend. Yeah. So we've had to cut way back on our engine runs. Yeah. But we have we have a Blenheim dash bowling broke. We have all of the trainer airplanes and we have uh, a mosquito from Calgary city that was stored in a warehouse. The, the Calgary mosquito society is rebuilding mosquito RS 700 here at Nanton. Okay. Because uh, we can give them the support they need to totally rebuild that mosquito. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Now that one, is that the one that got a fuselage from New Zealand or? No, no, it, it was a complete airplane. Uh, it, it was a, a photo recon version that was never used in combat that Spartan Airways bought and they used it to map the Canadian Arctic. Then they had trouble with the wooden spar. So they parked it and it sat in a warehouse for 40 years mm -hmm. and now they're rebuilding it to ground running, ground taxi, status they won't Brilliant. fly it Brilliant. but uh, so the 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 lads uh, here at our rebuild shop are always talking about the like the john smith collection and the omaka boys yeah uh, we're all we're all comparing notes and say did you see what that john smith's mosquitoes go and you know we're always talking about that so we hope that our um, that your omaka boys and our our people will uh, exchange notes and uh you know, help each other uh, with uh, mosquitoes. Yeah, I'm sure they will. Uh, now, they're a great team down there, and they're always uh, happy to talk with other teams as well. So um, so what we can sort of envisage for the future there is you will have a day when the Lancaster, the Mosquito, and hopefully the Halifax will all be running their engines. That's right. And uh, the town has given us the five acres next door to our Bomber Command Museum. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to build another 25,000 square foot hangar and we'll put the heavies in there. And then we've got uh, we've got a, a giant um, uh, we're going to have a giant taxi oval track and we're going to taxi airplanes uh, for the crowds. So uh, we're looking forward to the future and uh, uh, you know, I have to keep going on the Halifax stuff, but uh, it's it's all for those young young lads that had the weight of the world on their shoulders so many years ago, and uh, God bless them, they they did the job they had to do. Fantastic, and, and you know, thank you to you as well for all your dedication over the years and and making all this happen and pulling these teams together and recovering these aircraft and uh good luck with the recovery of the one in sweden it's going to be fantastic sure. well that's great dave and uh, i do appreciate your interest in uh, tracking me down and uh um so uh we'll uh, when you come over to north america make sure you come to uh just south of calgary here and uh we'll give you the chef's tour and then yeah. remember you can't go looking for old airplanes at night so you got to come and help me drink some beer well, that sounds like a really good plan. <laughs> I'd love to. Good, okay. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Dave. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciated uh, having the opportunity to talk to you. Okay, great. Cheers. Cheers.
Uh, that's really good. Thanks, Cal. Okay, yeah, we kind of went over a little bit on time, didn't we? I hope that uh, Philip's not ticked off. I, I think it was fine. <laughs> He's probably gone on his bike ride and doesn't okay. matter. I'm, I'm sitting here listening. I'm, ah. I'm, I'm really enjoying the talk. Yeah, well, and guess what, Philip? Some of it's true. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's been a wonderful journey. And, uh, you know, like you can see how universal this is, the love of the old airplanes. And, uh, you know, we, we focus, we build the airplanes. But we're, we're not, that's not the be all and the end all. It's the young men in the airplanes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've been de dedicated in the last sort of 15, maybe more years, trying to just record the stories of our veterans. And not many people have been doing it in New Zealand. And um, now there's not many of them left. So, um, but yeah, you just, you really get hooked on it, don't you? And I can see why you've, you're hooked on the Halifax story and meeting all those people. Um, yeah, I've got one guy here, Henry Jackson, Hank Jackson. He's 99.5 years old. And I go and see him about every week or two weeks. And he's the last man standing as far as I know. You know what I mean? I'm yep. holding on to him because I knew hundreds of them, but they're all gone now. Yeah, exactly. Yep, same here. Yeah. I, I actually had a, had a really good friend who lived only a couple of blocks from here. And he was on 405 Squadron. Um, he was the only Kiwi on the crew. And uh, did 30 ops uh, on Lancaster's on his 30th op. He had to bail out over Germany. Ended oh, wow. up last couple of um, months in the prisoner of war camp, so um, before the war ended. The only Kiwi language I know is that I forgot me hat. <laughs> I forgot me hat. <laughs> That's the only thing I know. Anyways, uh, good to talk with you guys. So uh, we'll, uh, you know, anytime, just bounce back to me and uh, let's stay in touch. Sure, yeah, and um, I think maybe down the track when you actually pull something out of the water over in Sweden, we might have to do a, an update. Well, sure, we can do it like this. Uh, I'll yeah. be sitting there. I'll be sitting there with a Tuborg. You know, the the Swedes came over here to Swedish diving team to see our museum, okay. and we got a local beer here called Alexander Keith's Pale Ale, India Pale Ale, mm -hmm. and they used to drink Tuborg when I was in Sweden. And they liked India pale, this India pale ale so much they called it three Borg. <laughs> <laughs> so Carl, can you bring us some three Borg? You know. So, uh, but okay, well that's good, guys. So uh, uh, any questions, any comments, just bounce back to me, uh, Facebook or Facebook Messenger or whatever. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Okay. Okay, see you, Dave. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.